I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is Pushback Talks again. Leilani, so what is it cooking? Is it good news or is it bad news? I have some good news. And you? Oh, it's tough times, Frederick. Tough times over here. My energy and heart are eaten up with what's happening in Palestine uh, and in Gaza uh, in particular. Just... I have no words, actually. I really, my heart is in a million pieces. Outside my, in the square where I live, there is a demonstration every day in solidarity with with uh, the people in Gaza and Palestine. But it's uh, interestingly enough, there is also youth out there um, defending the same stories because there is, I mean, in this town, there is, it's a very big uh, Arab Im- immigration and that there's been a lot of conflict, but they're now actually trying to build networks of communication between different communities and it's happening. It's not easy, yeah. but it's happening. So, and I think that's the good news that there's actually a lot of good people on on both sides. And right now, it seems like the the bad guys are like love to to send bombs on each other, and then the bombs also drops on ordinary people. Yeah, yeah. But I do think the good news. There are good news stories. I mean, I think the conversation is entirely different than it was in 2014 when there was the war in Gaza. I think people are actually using words like apartheid, which has never been used publicly with acceptance and certainly not by, for example, congresswomen in the United States. So I do see that, but it, the but the suffering is what... Um, what gets me and and of course it's so completely related to housing so it touches me on every level yeah but this is not a podcast about what's going on in jerusalem or in gaza or in tel aviv or in uh, on the west bank so it's actually we're going to talk about different things but i i was also going to give you some good news yeah please give us some good news last week we were uh, in, in croatia and they had elections in croatia uh, for city level elections and in Zagreb uh, the the progressive uh, mayor won the green uh, progressive mayor so it's like and he's worked closely with Eva Markitic who was the guest in our last week's uh, show so it's, so they they are really happy and the mayor of this mayor candidate of Pula where I showed a film who bought tickets to all her followers she also got elected. So it's like, it's cool things happening. That is very cool. Uh, and then our friends in Chile are over the top happy because there was, you know, there was an election to this new assembly to to put up a new constitution in Chile, which people have been fighting for for a long time. And the votes were in majority for progressive people. So the, the right wing didn't get enough votes to be able to block a new constitution, which is also a victory for these people who has been fighting on the streets for a year. So I'm Stunning. That's viva amazing. Chile. Viva and Chile. Viva Palestina también. <laughs> it's also good news, also happy days for the billionaires. Sure is. The pandemic has been good for them. <laughs> it's been good for them and it's they're actually building bigger boats than ever. And our dear friend Jeff Bezos, he is building a yacht that is 127 meters long means 470 feet long. It's only cost him 500 million US dollar. And it cost like, he 
actually need to also have other smaller boats following him with a helipad on. So, you know, it's it's uh, important stuff. And and what I understand, uh, the pandemic has been so difficult for the rich because they, they can't go to the big parties anymore. So they actually have to build more yachts so they can get away from the legislations and the masks and the stuff. So there is actually the, the shipyards building yachts are extremely happy now. And we should be happy for them too, shouldn't we? So happy. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yes. I did I did read that article in the Financial Times over the weekend about billionaires by uh, Ruchir Sharma with Morgan Stanley. He says that the total wealth of billionaires in the last 12 months went from $5 trillion to $13 trillion, more than doubled in 12 months during a pandemic. If I tell you that that pisses me off, is that a bad word? No, that's appropriate, I think. And let me tell you this, Frederick, sitting in Malmö, Sweden, in the past five years, the number of billionaires in Sweden went from 26 to 41, with 10 of those in the last year during the pandemic. The share of the billionaire's wealth in the GDP of every country was extremely high. So in Sweden, it was up to 30%. It's crazy. Which is a number I haven't seen. So it's, it's actually... This is something, folks, we need to talk about. I saw somewhere now it was uh, a guy in California tweeting, um, one of the former Clinton administration people, Robert Reich. Oh, yeah. He said that the, the billionaires during the pandemic, their net worth went up 44% during the pandemic. So we are going from the happy days for the billionaires down to the streets of Los Angeles. Uh, I worked a lot in Los Angeles uh, when I did the Bananas films. I was, the, the law office was really close to Skid Row, the Skid Row area where the homeless are very much gathered in L.A. And with us today, we have Pete White, founder and executive director of the Los Angeles Community Action Network, LACAN. And he's in the heart of Skid Row. Welcome to Pushback Talks, Pete. Hey, thanks for having me. Leilani, you've, you've met, you've been there and you met with Pete and you have always been talking so highly about him. Tell me, why is Pete such an important figure in the, in the game here? I met Pete a few years ago when I was UN Special Rapporteur. I decided to do a trip to California to look at... Uh, homeless encampments. I was doing a report on informal settlements and encampments and human rights obligations of uh, all levels of government. And when I put out the word that I wanted to go to California, the number of emails I received and texts, etc, saying you have to meet Pete White at LA Can, who works in Skid Row, uh, was crazy. So I had to meet Pete White, and I did. He was an incredible host, and he's an incredible advocate and organizer. Quite unusual, in my opinion, because he brings heavy intellect to it. He brings grassroots mobilizing and radicalism, and he brings arts and culture, and even gardens. Maybe Pete will talk about that. Community gardens uh, to his work. But really, he's a phenomenal advocate. And I'm ha so happy, Pete, that you've joined us on Pushback Talks. Oh, thanks for having me again. So and I can tell you listeners out there that Pete has a, a t-shirt with the name Resist on. So Pete, what you're you're resisting on Skid Row. Tell, tell us more about your, your daily work. Skid Row is situated in downtown Los Angeles. It's a 50 square block area 
um, that was designated as such based on a policy, a policy called the policy of containment, right? And so the state creates this bordered, this boundaried area in an attempt to keep its poverty hidden in the eastern portion of downtown Los Angeles. And now on the western portion of downtown Los Angeles, um, we have a campaign that we've been running for years called the Dirty Divide. On the west side, you know, you find the multinational corporations, you find green space, you find parks, you find restrooms, right? You find infrastructure. But on the east side, where Skid Row exists, you find dark faces, right? Black and brown people, largely immigrants, women, right? And you find some of probably on the one hand, the harshest conditions ever. Um, there's nearly 4,000 folks living in this 50 square block area on the sidewalks. Um, but then on the other side of that harsh reality, you find a resilient community, a very cultural community, a very loving community um, that's really fighting and organizing to get its fair share, right? Los Angeles, particularly in the downtown area, is a tale of two cities. Because as the, the dance of the cranes, much like across the globe, um, the, the downtown centers are being gentrified, right? And so on the one hand, you have all of these cranes, even through the pandemic, right? You can't stop building. You have all of these cranes that are creating oftentimes homes that people will not live in. But then as the cranes rise, so do the informal settlements. And that's sort of my characterization of welcome to Los Angeles, welcome to Skid Row. Pete, do you see a relation between the cranes and more people living in the streets? Oh, absolutely. We see it, but a lot of people, even some who lived inside, you know, through Airbnb or some other temporary situation, they don't understand the relationship, right? Because just on the government side, when we see these big catalyst projects, these multi-story towers, what people don't understand is the footprint around those multi-stories of, of luxury housing is oftentimes aided and abetted with public subsidy, right? Public giveaways, right? Either on land, tax forgiveness, and, and all of these types of things. The weird thing that people also don't get is that a lot of this brand new luxury developments, both for rent and for sale, sit empty. And this was a situation that was happening pre-pandemic. And, you know, for us as organizers on the ground, you know, back in the day, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we thought, right, because you have to realize the idea of financialization of housing it's just really catching on in the United States. Like folks in the UK and Canada, Leilani's work has been important to help us here in Los Angeles understand financialization. And so when we thought about organizing in these buildings, we would say, well, if we can just push hard enough, right, to make sure that there are provisions to bring us in these properties, if that doesn't happen, that property should tank, right? Because 
we're thinking in our minds, the property has to be full to work because everyone always tells you it doesn't pencil out, right? We need all the rents to pencil out. But then with financialization, we finally realize they don't have to be full, right? People are parking their cash here, right? This is a cash cow situation. And so finally, that is grounded. That has been grounded in Los Angeles over the last five, 10 years. Like we're, we're really getting it now, right? The, the role of financialization and, you know, like the Blackstones and other folks, um, how they're capitalizing and benefiting. And I think if we get into COVID, uh, I want to talk a little bit about that. The story you are telling is the story that people are telling almost from every country around the world. There is a name for it, the dark towers, new built towers that stand empty nighttime. You can see there's nobody turning off and on the lights. And and that's kind of, it's kind of scary. And it's, and it's as vulgar as Jeff Bezos' yacht. And if he's made all that money, he could, for God's sake, spend something on some decent work, you know, kind of paying his workers or or, you know, using his money in a way so it could benefit others. And the same goes with people who park their money in apartments and houses and let them stand empty while people are sleeping in the streets. I thought two things were particularly interesting about what Pete said. First of all, was that when these sales and deals for develop multi-story developments are done, they get these incredible deals on the land, tax breaks, other incentives to encourage them to come in, all public money, as Pete said. And for me, when I hear public, that for me is opportunity for activism because it is the public actors, our governments, who have human rights responsibilities and have to be accountable to the people. And so I think that is actually the next kind of step with activism around financialization is to go after those um, incentives that are actually public money. Um, and the other thing I've been thinking about that that comes from what Pete said is I think we have to start disrupting the actual sales themselves and figure out how to intervene in those sales so that those sales never happen, actually. that That's my latest. And how to do that, I'm not exactly sure. I'm working on that. But um, that that involves things like ensuring cities have the power to intervene in sales, but of course, like right of first refusal, right? Where a city could bid on something. But that of course means that the city needs to actually have the mindset that they should do that and that they should do that for the public good. Um, but anyway, those were my two thoughts, but Pete raised the pandemic. I, I mean, this podcast is a baby of the pandemic because we couldn't travel. And one of the first things we did was actually your recommendations to governments regarding the pandemic. And, and it, of course, it, it's kind of obvious, wash your hands. Well, you need a place to wash your hands. You know, it's like, uh, you need a home. And so you, you, you call to the governments of the world that you, you need to house people now. So, of course, I, want to, it, I would like to hear from Pete how, what happened when the, the pandemic became real in, in Los Angeles. A lot happened on one hand, right? Just in terms of mutual aid, people leaning, leaning in, but insofar as duty bearers stepping up um, to provide during the pandemic, that fell flat, right? And so let's think about it this way. 
January, March, we know the pandemic is heading to the U.S., you know, and we're very clear in Skid Row that there would be no help coming. You know, we all recall, and it wasn't so long ago, that words like shelter in place, right? Stay at home. Like, what does shelter, what does sheltering in place look like for someone um, who's living their life in, in an informal settlement or a tent, right? Um, what does a stay at home order look like, right? To an individual who's living in informal settlements, right? Um, what does washing your hands profusely all day long look like in communities who have been fighting for public health infrastructure for a decade, but still has none? What does masking up look like for poor people when even wealthy folks at the early stages weren't, weren't given access to masks? And so we knew early on that there would be no help coming, right? Our, our, um, our center is located in the heart of Skid Row. It's the LA Can Justice and Wellness Center, right? And so as soon as the pandemic hit, I would say like within three days after the CDC shelter in place um, order came out, all of the charitable food giving in our community fell flat, gone immediately, right? Because now all the churches and all of the other do-gooders are, you know, filling their, their cabinets and bracing for this storm. And we had members showing up at our front gates, right? And let me just say, when I tell the story, I'm not, we were not trying to be martyrs at all, but we knew if we did not lean in, help would not come, right? And so we started putting together um, a team of mutual aid packaging. Now, our organization doesn't do blankets and soups and meals and stuff like that. We build power, but because everyone was gone, we had to quickly build the infrastructure right, to provide stay-at-home kits, right? And what does that look like in our community? We had to secure tents. We had to secure masks, right? Even when the testing started, the city and the county, they forgot about our community. They were like, mm-mm, right? We're not testing them, right? Because in their minds, it was a disposable community, right? And so we had to go out to community health clinics and others and fight hard to bring them in to start testing our folks, right? And so for the first three months, it was all the community, right? It was all the community um, creating the stay-at-home kits. The other thing that we did, um, because we, you know, um, it's like Maya Angelou says, she says there is nothing of note in history that's done by one person or one organization. And so we believe in this power of togetherness and bringing other folks in. 15,000 people are in Skid Row, 13 to 15,000, but this is both housed and houseless and transitional housing, shelter, what have you. For that 15,000 people, there's only roughly seven bathrooms, right? Um, and so we knew early on that this idea of sanitation was if this if sanitation was the nexus or not having your hands washed was the nexus to an outbreak, we knew we were in trouble. 
And so we looked, you know, we looked afar. We looked to see what the Congolese did uh, during the Ebola crisis, right? And they tapped rain barrels. And so we were, we started sourcing, and this is in the height of the pandemic. We created these, these, these rain barrels called sanitation stations where we got community artists and artists from outside of the community to paint these beautiful messages, right? Um, and these healthy messages around hand washing and around COVID-19. We went a step further. We organized attendance in the community. We organized and paid community health promoters to teach folks in all of the informal settlements around Skid Row and citywide on how and why to use um, these sanitation stations. And so, because we weren't getting the mere basics, y'all. We weren't getting the ability to wash our hands. And so this is where the agency and the resilience and drawing down on history and relationships really helped. And I'll be happy to report, interestingly enough, and this, you know, across the across the country, everyone thought that houseless communities were going to be ravaged um, by COVID-19. Now, while that might be true in some of the shelters, by and large, folks who were living outside, who were sheltering in place our way, were pretty safe, right, from the pandemic. We're pretty safe. And so our numbers never got out of hand and never got out of control for those folks who were living outside. I love this idea of looking to the Congo to see how they dealt with Ebola and bringing it back to the streets of LA. I mean, that for me, is, it's, it's, it's amazing and so clever. Um, but it also speaks to one of my deep concerns, which is, of course, California is the fifth largest economy in the world. And look at what conditions you're facing and the people in Skid Row are facing and what you have to do. I mean, it, that starkness is is what has always just obviously part of what has disturbed me uh, deeply about what's happening on Skid Row. And um, w- one question I have, has the election of Biden made any difference? Or is this all happening at local and state level? I mean, the ignoring of Skid Row, the maltreatment the policing, the criminalization, the ongoing racism, dispossession, colonialism, etc. Does it make a difference to have Joe Biden as president? Oh, Leilani, you know, now that's not a fair question because you just <laughs> you just jumbled like 50 questions in there. And I'm like, I want to answer all of that. There's so much there. It's so rich. So let me just say, um, you know, when we do our work, we we act locally, but we're thinking globally. We act locally, but we're thinking nationally, right? And so we have a mayor who wanted to be um, the president, but then figured out, like, that's not going to happen, right? Who is refusing the Project Room Key 100% reimbursable dollars to place folks inside of hotels during the pandemic. You have the Biden administration that's giving a 100% reimbursable uh, subsidy to, to states, right? Like 100%, you can, you can buy motels, you can buy hotels, right? You can erect structures, right? You can do all of this. Um, and our mayor has said, and this was like two weeks ago, 
because we've been pushing him. And so here's a dirty little secret. This is what we want to do for us. We're like, let's get as many people inside of these hotels as possible, right? We have these huge, the, the Marriott and you know, you name it, all of these hotels that are skid row adjacent, right? that are responsible for about a billion dollars worth of subsidies, worth of subsidies in tax forgiveness, right? And so what? how does this work? We say to hotel, or they say to hotel operators, if you build in this campus, in this Staples, LA Lives, AEG campus, we will forgive your hotel tax for 25 years. Now, the rub with forgiving the hotel tax for 25 years, the hotel tax is the tax that actually funds the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. That is the only local source of dollars that we have for affordable housing. And you give all of that away, right? You give all of that away for forgiveness because your idea of the city is not for the the residents. And so for us, pandemic, or let's say syndemic hits because it's two pandemics at once, it's COVID-19 and it's poverty, right? Together, it hits, we immediately say, open the doors to the hotels because we own them, right? Like we own, we have a vested interest in them. The mayor who also owns steak in a hotel, he's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not opening those doors, right? I'm not opening those doors. But then he goes even further and says last week that he cynically, him, not me, he says, I cynically don't want to place people in hotels because there is no place for them to go after. But instead of hotels, what he doesn't say is he non-cynically is erecting parking lots and painting little white squares and placing tents on those squares temporarily. And so this is the, this is the logic, or this is the tales of a few cities that are going on in Los Angeles. So, I mean, I I read some numbers here. So California has 25% of the homeless population in the U.S. It's like much higher numbers than in other states. Why? If you asked that question 20 years ago, you know, the answer, the stock answer would have been, those people just don't try hard enough meritocracy oh. right <laughs> uh. if one job isn't enough they should have worked two jobs three <laughs> jobs like whatever it takes to to pay the rent they should have done it right or they would have told you it's because you know they're alcoholics and it's mental illness right we've we've worked for a long time to actually force the governments to tell the truth the reality frederick here is particularly when we look at black and brown homelessness deindustrialization like these are all all political and economic choices deindustrialization right the 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 moving of all the sort of uh, the industry jobs that were here steel auto uh, aerospace gone plummet then you have a broken safety net system right not like like a non-existent safety net system then you have the war on drugs, which is the war on people, which then does something called asset stripping when it nets so many hundreds of thousands of people, right? Um, and then um, make them ineligible um, for employment that doesn't exist anyway. And then we get to NAFTA, right? Um, and you just have this whole hodgepodge of why people are here 
without. The other thing, it's interesting, and that's a great question, Frederick. So here in Los Angeles, um, at a median, the median wealth for white Angelinos is $350,000, and that's largely linked to housing inflation. That's because they owned homes, right? Now, the juxtaposition for black folks, it's $3,500. So $350,000 because you have inflated houses. Black folks, $3,500. And then for Latinos, Latinx, it's $4,000. But then let's go. They're doing fine, the Latinos. (laughs) (laughs) Doing fine, right? Doing $500, doing $500 better than black folks. But then, but let's, let's hold on. On liquid assets, the things that you own that you can sell if everything goes bad. Those same white folks are worth $100,000. Black folks are worth $300. So we only have $300 worth of things that we could actually sell, right, if all went bad. And Latinos, and I don't get this stat, but Latinos have zero. Zero, right? And so you think about the pandemic, pre-pandemic, there were 350,000 families at risk of becoming houseless, like barely hanging on because they're working three or four jobs, right? Or they're living in shitty conditions, right? Paying more money to live in slum conditions. Now, um, what we are estimating in evictions, in evictions now um, in Los Angeles is anywhere from 600,000 to 700,000 families. So we're talking about roughly 1.4 million people, right? Who are at risk, at an extreme risk of becoming houseless. One million people at risk. I was thinking, of course, I've done another film in Los Angeles called Bike Versus Cars, where I looked into the history of the, all the highways. And, and I know that like 80% of all land in the Los Angeles area goes to park cars, basically, or to host cars, meaning that a lot of homes got lost when you built all the highways. So I think that might also play a role in this game. How do you see that? That definitely plays a role in this game. And that's not just a Los Angeles story. That's a Florida story, right? That's Overtown, right? They, they give you this promise. Uh, they give you this promise of direct routes, right? Like we're going to build a highway through your neighborhood so it can take you to the promised land, right? And it's ironic. This this is a great question, Frederick. So here in Los Angeles, there is a a takeover, a housing takeover movement, right? Because unbeknownst to many people here in Los Angeles, our Metropolitan um, Transit Authority, the folks who are responsible for the freeways and the buses, when they were planning on building these freeways, some of the freeways did not get built. And so the houses were never raised. And so we have beautiful single family homes by the hundreds that sit empty next to the freeway, sit empty, right? And so people are now taking over those properties that were linked to that freeway construction um, and being met with just force, right? Met with force. And so yeah, the the role of transportation in the displacement and the banishment of communities uh, 
is a long story, but you know, is has deep roots in this country. And and then Jeff Bezos' friends in Beverly Hills they managed to protect their neighborhood from the highways. So so they it never happened. So it's interesting. Yeah. It's a, not only um, did the transportation authority knock down homes and build roads through communities to sort of get rid of folks, they also, in our busing system, right, in our public transportation, they made it as difficult as possible for poor people to use public transportation to get to areas like Beverly Hills, to the beaches, right, to the public spaces. So made it almost impossible to do this using public transportation. So not only did they raise your community and knock it down and, and move you out, but then they made it almost impossible for you to be able to enjoy the natural resources like the beach in California. So Pete, we couldn't get through the podcast without discussing the lawsuit and recent judgment against the city of LA. The case was launched by a group of businesses called the LA Alliance. And as I understand it, the Alliance wants to see Skid Row cleaned up. Some have hailed Judge Carter's decision in the case historic. But my question to you is, from your perspective, is it a good decision? Will it actually ensure the right to housing for Skid Row residents consistent with human rights? It is not a human rights judgment. The LA Alliance for Human Rights is not a human rights organization. It is the business community. The judge gives you this 110-page dissertation on race, right? On structural racism. But the remedy that he establishes does not match the rhetoric, right? So he talks a lot about the things I talked about earlier, redlining and, you know, home ownership and all these things. But then in the end, he says things like, if you reduce houselessness by 60% in a given district. And so in our country, um, in the city of Los Angeles, we have 15 districts that have 15 council members. And so instead of looking at the city as a whole, if you reduce 60% of the houseless people in your district, you can then go forth with criminalization. I've never thought that you had to get a little bit over half the problem before you can start doing something else, right? So at 60%, and you're right, Leilani, his order is not for housing, right? His order is for an offer of temporary shelter. So, you know, you, you know how it looks. And so everything that precedes the actual thing that he's saying sounds as if he's saying to people, I am a housing advocate. Like I am looking for permanent housing. But in the end, what he's calling for is any type of situation whether that's a parking lot shelter, a pallet home, which he's really um, fond of, it's these six month structures. If you offer that to someone and they need to take it and it's 60%, after 60% is taken care of, you can create enforcement zones and, and this, that, and the other. Now, the other thing about the case, and this is what's great for this conversation, right? So the lead plaintiff in the case is a dude 
named Larry Roush. Larry Roush is one of the largest property owners in downtown Los Angeles. He's the lead plaintiff. There was just a story that was released last week by the LA Times that shows Larry Roush has just filed for permits for a one and a half billion to two billion dollar campus like towers and promenades in Skid Row, but calls Skid Row the arts district. This is the lead plaintiff. And so now it becomes really clear what the lawsuit is really about. You're, you are sitting on valuable land. People want your land and, and it's, there's a lot of money of it and you are sitting there and and but then you provide some arts and then so they want to use the your work, your creativity, your you know the beauty that you have created on Skid Row. Uh, they want to sell it as a, as an asset for investors. How did you land there? Why are you working so with putting so much soul into to Skid Row? I was looking. I was looking for my cousin. Um, and it, it was, you know, it was days, it was before, it was before we had apps, right? And there was a book called The Thomas Guide. And someone said, I saw your cousin on Fifth and Crocker, right? And I go to Fifth and Crocker and there's this beautiful mural that's been there 40, 50 years called the Berlin Wall. And on this mural, you have, you know, Sojourner Truth, you have Che Guevara, right? You have Harriet Tubman, you have all of these images of these leaders in our communities peering down on poverty. And so when I landed on that community, I didn't find, or on that corner, I didn't find my cousin, I found myself, right? Because I looked around and was like, how are all of these folks who look like me, who are living in the shadow of all of these wealthy multinational corporations getting nothing, and right? And so that was the spark that sort of struck the idea that led to the building of the Los Angeles Community Action Network. Because I felt like um, we were never going to, this was not a problem of how many sandwiches you could give. This was not a problem of how many um, shelter beds. This was a problem of inequity and wealth and structural racism. And that's how I attacked it. And you know, we attacked it with building power. We've attacked it with culture. We've attacked it with art, Frederick, because we believe that art has no address, right? We believe that our streets can be the amphitheaters. We believe that our walls can be the canvas that inspires folks to want to resist, as my shirt says that no one can see but us, um, resist and create a new North Star. It's, I mean, did you find your cousin? I did find my cousin. Uh, a real sad note, but happy note. He actually was shot on Skid Row, leaving a substance abuse program. Um, he was shot in his back. He lay dying on the ground, but someone in Skid Row, a woman who had some medical experience, was a nurse. She stabilized him and gave him CPR, right? There were dudes in the neighborhood, guys in the neighborhood that ran the shooter down and held them down. This is unheard of. This doesn't happen in big cities, right? And so this community gave me my cousin back, right? This community 
made sure that my cousin both lived, stayed around, organized, built power in the community for about seven years. And now he moved to Atlanta with his family and he's doing well. Oh, what a beautiful end of this podcast. I mean, now we can go out and... Well, let's have a beer at least. (laughs) (laughs) So Pete White, uh, Executive Director of the LA Community Action Network. And I guess there is a web page. We will put a link up on the blurb of this show so you can find out more because inspiration, I think we all need to inspire each other. And I mean, you for sure inspire a lot of people around the U.S., but I mean, you also, I know we have a lot of homeless advocates around the world. I mean, some of them have been also writing to us before this. There's somebody, Guy Leon up in British Columbia, somewhere writing to us. And I actually got a mail from a journalist in Northern California that had lost her house during the pandemic, and she's now living in her car but she still works. So she wants to review the film and push the film. You've seen it. And we should, we should come back to LA and organize a screening at, at the street corner in, in Skid Row. Can't we do that? Come on, we, we can do it at LA Can. Are you kidding me? I was waiting. Yeah. We have this series called Conversations and Tasters. Let's do it. Where we can bring 300 people. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, let's, let's do, do that as soon as this shit is over. Yeah. <laughs> so That's right. let's do it. Thank you very much, Pete. Leilani, you have to say something about how we fund this show? Yeah, we have no money for this show. And so we are reliant on our ever-growing Patreons. I think we have more Patreons now than ever. We have 50 Patreons, and they are like bringing in almost $250 a month. Anyway, thank you very much, and uh, see you soon. And and see you in L.A., Pete. Thank you guys for having me. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks. Thanks so much, Pete. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week.